But now, in the first of a new series, Fry's English Delight takes us to a universe full of magical language. Here's Stephen Fry. Ah, hmm. Tapping fingers. Magic is just an empty box. That's almost a catchphrase for magicians. But actually, I hope that the empty box in our Manchester studio doesn't stay empty for too long. I've been waiting ten minutes now. Darren? Darren, is anybody Hello. there? Hello. I'm here. Hello, Darren Hello. Brown. Hello there. Now, of course, 200 years ago, people have regarded the idea of you in Manchester and me here in London speaking as a kind of magic. Magic. Yes, magic's always been synonymous with technology that we haven't quite caught up with. Isn't it? Anything that is suitably incomprehensible is, is equatable with magic. That's the Arthur C. Clarke mm. definition, isn't it? Mm. It seems to bear up. You're a part hypnotist, part magician, part mind control, which your name was first associated with. Well, how would you describe language in all that? I think magic's all about language. Ma magic's all about a story that you tell yourself of something that's happened. I mean, if you think about it, magic doesn't really relate to what a magician does. It relates to an experience that somebody has in the audience or as a, as a spectator. It's something that you create yourself. So therefore, it's sort of, it is a narrative. It's a story you tell yourself after the event. What's more important to me is the language that the spectator uses after the event. So, uh, as any magician will know, half of the trick happens when it's all over, when someone's describing a trick that they've seen to somebody else. Yes. In the same way that if, you, if you're talking about a holiday that you've loved, you kind of inflate certain aspects of it, even more so with a magic trick, because you want to show that you've been fooled by something that is worthy of being fooled by. You know, you don't and want to each, look like an idiot. So. each repetition, the, it gets mm. more extreme. So, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that our ancestors would have made much of the magic of hearing someone from the grave, as it were. This is the late Terence McKenna, explorer, philosopher, and seeker of mind altering states. There's the scientific theory which says the world is tiny packets of matter squealing along through empty space. Another theory is the world is made of language. Magic, magic, be happy every day. The world is made of language. That's a compelling idea. Stuff we can't see or touch whose workings we don't fully understand. Dr. Steven Pinker, experimental psychologist, cognitive scientist, and Harvard intellectual. It's not surprising that people think that language has magical powers, because words are kind of mysterious. Through the use of words, I can, in a real sense, control your mind. And that's because the processing of language is automatic. We can't turn it off. If someone says something to us in a language that we understand, we can't just process it as a stretch of sound. The brain automatically converts it into meaning, which means if I say a word, in earshot of you, you will think that thought because you have no choice but to process the meaning of what I say, even if the meaning is very upsetting. If I were to swear at you, that would light up some of the deep and upsetting emotional circuits of the brain. And that makes words seem very, very powerful, especially if you don't have an understanding of neuroscience you, uh, so that there's a pathway from sound to eardrum to auditory centers of the brain to uh, emotional centers of the brain. It can seem that words themselves are a kind of magic. So mind control through language, something we've all tried from an early age, moving the Cocoa Pops from Mum's side of the breakfast table to our own by muttering zenith and frowning intently. The Harry Potter generation would have other words, of course. If language is something magic, apparently allowing people to control others' minds, think of the names chosen by those who want to enforce the mystery further. Svengali, 
Houdini, the great soprendo, Sooty. Somehow the vowel ending increases the exotic. Darren Brown. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that must be your real name, I'm assuming. <laughs> That's Did it ever occur to you to, to, to get a stage name? No. Perhaps because my interest in magic is, rather than asking people to suspend their disbelief, is more about sort of engaging belief, so it becomes something, I think, more interesting. I think, I think then, so maybe a reflection of that is not going for a fantastical name. I know from your autobiography you started doing table magic in, in restaurants and things, and that mm. seems to me to be the real <laughs> test in some ways, because... That's horrible. <laughs> yeah, cause you do get people who've naturally been drinking, and they're going to go, ah, oh, it's a trick. You've got to own that space, haven't you? Yes, you have. And uh, I remember once doing a, a, something like that. There were a bunch of people sat around a table with me. You know, I was doing a, a trick for everybody. It was a card trick. And they were all sort of enjoying it, apart from one guy who was being very polite about it, but was just saying, look, I'm sorry, I, I just don't really sort of get it. And I said, what, what do you mean? What's, what's the problem? And they said, well, I don't get what I'm supposed to be appreciating here. And it was just, it, the whole experience had just sort of totally over his head. You know, he wasn't being rude, just didn't, yeah. didn't get caught up in the, the... And that's really what it's about. It's about being ultimately transparent by something, and, and that's not really ultimately to do with the method. It's to do with the, the, the effect that you create. It's part of this to do with you can tell which people are more susceptible to or a suggestion. Or yes, you look for a certain openness. It's a, sort of, it's a personality trait, really. I think some people just have it and some people don't. I'm not a very good subject at all oh, um, for it, and other, other people just, just are. And then, yes, once you, once you have that, those will be the same people that will be probably very responsive to placebos um, mm. and... Uh, you know, other forms of suggestion and just things that sort of operate in that area. Are there uh, certain words that you would always be wary of using and others that, you are, uh, that are good to use? Like, is it maybe bad to say concentrate but good to say focus or something as simple as that? I think it's about understanding presuppositions, I think, is the key. And it's actually it's a very NLP word, a neurolinguistic programming word. But if you say to somebody, oh, you'll really like my friend, you'll really get on with them, of course your initial reaction is to sort of back away from that. You think, well, maybe I won't. You know, so the, um, the key, I think, is understanding presumption and, and, and presupposition and, and being able to, rather than saying things directly, to sort of Im imply them in a way that people make those decisions themselves. Hypnosis has become a lot more um, permissive over the years. Like the old language of, you know, you will do this, you are feeling sleepy, has now been replaced by you can allow. You can, yes. you can notice yes. how that sleepiness is. It's more inviting. It is, it is. Yeah. Magic is a disease of language, claimed the occultist Alistair Crowley. A bizarre image, but devilishly suggestive. It's odd, then, that we encourage children to learn a vocabulary that goes out of its way to corrupt reality. So on the count of one, you're going to show the coin. On the count of two, you're going to take the coin. On the count of three, you're going to move over to the side. On the count of four, you're going to give it a little blow. Or say the magic words, abracadabra, hocus-pocus, whatever you like, and that's what the point you make the magic happen. Davenport's Magic Shop is one of my favourite places in the world. It's in the depths of London's Charing Cross Underground Station, and it's the oldest family magic shop in the world. A real-life diagonale with certified professors to take novices through the ropes. Or the cards. Remember that card? I'm going to take your card and put it in the middle. Seven of diamonds. Yes. The world of legerdemain. Literally, lightness of hand has two languages. The deliberately mysterious on-stage language of izzy-wizzy, let's get busy, and the secret trade jargon known only to those within the circle. Sooty. Sooty, what are you doing here? Hmm? What? Oh, gestural sim... Oh, I see. Sooty says, 
that there are in fact three languages if we include the language of silence, of expectation, of conjuring images where there are none. Yes. What record? Oh, resonate. Oh, yes. Which, says Sooty, resonates with the idea of magic as an empty box to be filled with the spectator's imagination. Thank you, Sooty. Well, possibly. Let's stick to two languages now, and Scott Penrose, who is vice-president of that most secret of magic societies, the Magic Circle. There's the language that the magicians use, and of course there's the language of performance, which are two different things altogether. Essentially, when it comes to the language of performance, it's one of the few businesses where you're allowed to lie, I think, um, quite legitimately. And a lot of magic wouldn't survive without the patter, and the patter is actually part of the technique so you've got on one level a number of sleight of hand moves going on in conjunction with uh, a lie and that's the lie of your patter and your language that you're using throughout to deceive the audience the can't the ball and got the ball in the cup he can't in the pocket in the pocket he can't be the can same time as on the cup if on the other hand the ball and the cup are together then the cup you're not following this are you? magician paul daniels cupping balls with a bedazzling spool of near nonsense and you can get the dvd and slow it down so the rhetoric of magic the actual sound rhythm speed and delivery of the words is key to its effectiveness whether you're a shaman performing an autopsy on a chicken or a popular Yorkshireman sawing his attractive wife in half. Let's look at some of those suggestive words, then, that make up the magician's glossary. Folklorist Juliet Wood. Abracadabra we know from, oh, maybe the 3rd century AD, as an amulet. Now, an amulet was something you wore rather than something you said. And abracadabra would be written in a kind of triangle shape. So you'd, you'd keep writing the word and dropping off one letter from the ending until you got this triangle. And it was supposed to protect you from disease. But eventually the words became associated not with serious magic, but with this kind of playful, this playful magic. Now, there were all sorts of wonderful sort of suggestions as to what it may be. Was it Aramaic? I think sometimes the suggestions are really more creative than they are accurate. The same thing with Hocus Pocus, which again we know now just as uh, magic stage magic. The suggestion there is that it might actually be a corruption of some of the words of the Roman Catholic Mass, the words of the consecration, hoc est enum corpus meum, this is my my body, which, of course, particularly among the Protestants, the Protestant reformers, who felt that Catholicism was a kind of paganism, was a kind of idolatry. Um, taking these things and kind of satirizing them was not uncommon. The other possibility with abracadabra and hocus-pocus is that it's simply pseudo-Latin. It's simply nonsense words made up to sound impressive. Nonsense. The deliberate paradox of not quite meaning anything, with a touch of taboo from religion, a frisson of fetishism and amulets. No wonder these secretive words were thought to be dangerous. Which is why, in 1584, a young Englishman took it upon himself to produce the first definitive glossary of magic to nail down the words and explain the illusions. So we'll just unlock the safe. Fortunately, because it's radio, you can't tell what the combination is. Here it lies. The first edition. Scott Penrose again. The Discovery of Witchcraft is the very first magic book written in English. It was written by Reginald Scott, 
And Reginald Scott wasn't a magician, but he was a justice for the peace. And essentially, he wrote this book not to expose magic secrets for entertainment. It's because uh, magicians were being persecuted because people thought that they were witches. So as part of the uh, process, he wrote this book to expose all these secrets. It's obviously the very first glossary of magic. There's a lot of technical phrases, a bit like you'd have in scientific and medical industries. I am well assured, the sceptic Scott says here in his introduction, that if all the old women in the world were witches and all the priests conjurers, we should not have a drop of rain nor a blast of wind the more or less for them. He's attacking the idea of witchery and the Inquisition in one go. At the same time, he's written a manual for illusionists who would only go on to evolve an even more secret language. Yeah, there's an awful lot about uh, the language of magic. I'd like to tell you that I simply I can't. I'm bound by a secrecy oath with the, with the magic circle. And a lot of that language is in terms of the performance, about um, directing people in a certain direction. There's words like uh, savant. Now, that's got its origins in the, in the French language, but I can't actually tell you what that means, otherwise I'd get into trouble. I'd be thrown out of the magic circle if I described what a savant was. So that's absolutely sacrosanct, it's secret. So things like a mirror walk, for example, you couldn't describe that to somebody. For A, I don't think they'd understand it anyway, and you'd be exposing how the method worked. There's other words like foulard. I can tell you what a foulard is. Uh, a foulard is a, is a large handkerchief. But you wouldn't find any. You wouldn't. You wouldn't go into a department store and ask for a foulard when you were looking for a headscarf. But uh, magicians still use words like foulard, only because it finds its origins within these bits of jargon that magicians use, going back a hundred years. Frustrating, isn't it? And it has my mind going in magic circles as to what a mirror walk might be. Darren Brown, you're not a member of the magic circle, so how do you feel about this idea of a kind of uh, official magic secrets act? I, I sort of quite like it. I think there's something quite kind of romantic about it. Um, you mentioned yourself about magic being an empty box, this idea that magicians are guarding an empty safe. That the, mm. uh, the reason why secrets are kept is not because they're so fantastic, it's that they're rather pedestrian and dull, and if they got out, yeah. everyone would be quite disappointed. So yeah. I, I quite like the idea. I personally want to make my own decisions as to whether I think something could be revealed or not, but even if, even if I do reveal things, I, I, know I don't like giving away trade secrets. I prefer to give away things that would enhance the overall effect. So yes. uh, I, think, I think it all depends on context and doing it sensitively. Do, do you get cross if you see people using this linguistic power, this sometimes fierce oratory in order to create so-called miracles? Obviously, you made a program in which you taught a ski instructor, I think he was, to become a faith healer. It was an extraordinary sight. You showed him how you can press your palm against someone and cause them to collapse and how you can mm. make their legs appear one longer than the other and all these <laughs> astonishing things. And then we saw apparent faith healers doing exactly the same thing. That's language, that's power, that's rhetorical power, isn't it? I sort of researched that. We went to see one of the biggest names in that world come over. He came over to do a show in London. Obviously, he's from California. And I'm sat there with my friend and co-writer as, as very much non-believers, and you're in a room of people that are very much believing. And it's nothing to do with the church or belief at all. It's a very specific scam that kind of uses the church and uses religion as a, as a way in, which is a, you know, which is a shame. But what was fascinating was seeing this, again, a purely linguistic tool it's just a man talking and by the end of this event you know he has people leaping around on stage that 
seemingly, you know, weren't able to walk earlier on that day. And, and of course, what's, what's essentially happening is that adrenaline is a great painkiller. So if you can create adrenaline, which, of course, you can do through words and showmanship and, and charisma and so on, and, and music and all the rest of it as well that's around that, you know, if you whip people up into a bit of a frenzy and then you start to say things like, you know, if, as the spirit moves through the room, if you, you know, if, maybe if you had arthritis now, you know, if you had a, that pain in your back is going now and you find you can move your back or you can move your, your neck from side to side, and if you find you can, just, just bring yourself forward. So you've got this great filtering system as people come forward. Then there's another filtering that goes on with the, um, the sort of stewards that then decide who they're actually going to bring up. And then, then these people come up and jump around and do things they couldn't do, which, of course, nothing's changed other than they're not feeling the pain at the moment, which presumably they will twice as much when they get home. But again, it's an extraordinary thing that is created just through talking in a very clever way. But let's get back to the psychological and linguistic theories advanced by Steven Pinker about how language exerts control. There's another way in which words seem to have magical powers, which is they refer to things in the world, and not just in the world, but anywhere in the universe. If I utter the word Jupiter, me and the planet Jupiter are now in a relationship. I'm referring to Jupiter. But how can that be? I've never been to Jupiter. I wouldn't know what, know what Jupiter looks like other than in a, in a drawing. But that gives words another kind of magical power in our own mind. Given that our words already bind us to things in the world, they already put us in a relationship with things far away and long ago, unknown to us, it's a short step to think that we can perhaps affect those entities by the words that we utter, by spells and, and uh, hexes and curses and prayers and abracadabra and other verbal formulas. I have bedimmed the noontide sun, called forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war. To the dread rattling thunder have I given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own bolt. The strong-based promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oped and let them forth by my so potent art. Of course, it was the psycholinguist Shakespeare who was the first to realize worlds made of language. In The Tempest, we have an aging magician, Prospero, living in exile on a remote island, who uses his magic to whip up a great storm as a finale to his on-stage magical career. Now, there's a shock to an audience in that speech. Shakespearean academic Catherine Duncan-Jones. ...is the idea that he's not, not only brought about a storm, or many storms, and the play is called The Tempest, and it's all about a storm that Prospero has created. He's done more than that. He has brought the dead back to life. And that's where I feel that the Prospero mask is slipping and Shakespeare's face is beginning to peep through. And he is reminding the theatre audience that he has brought ancient Romans and medieval monarchs and all sorts of people who've been dead for a very long time. He has caused them to live in the theatre very vividly. The most obvious way of looking at it is that it's really about the magic of theatre. And Shakespeare in the Jacobean period is now writing for indoor theatres, which had artificial light. It had much more instrumental music, much more singing, and a large number of very, very talented boys, of whom the actor playing Ariel must have been the lead one, who were acrobatic and they could perform in all sorts of physical ways that were rather new in the theatre of the time. I reign above me, says the God of justice. 
Now, this sounds a bit spooky, doesn't it? Like being at some kind of Masonic ritual and seeing your head of state appear with antlers for a hat. Even if that audio was audible, you wouldn't understand the words of Alastair Crowley, England's most notorious occultist. But through this rather extraordinary-sounding language, Enochian, he claimed to commune with angels and devils alike. And in the spirit of Enochian, Crowley also named his first child Nuit Ma Ahathur Hakte Sappho Jezebel Lilith. What's wrong with Brooklyn, I ask? But the incantatory effect of vowels and consonants repeating like the rhythm in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is transporting. Philip Pullman, writer of stories. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze, the sails dropped down, t'was sad as sad could be, and we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. I can remember when I first heard it. I was a little boy in my school in, in Norfolk, and I was about eight, and the English teacher just read it one day. We didn't tell us anything about it and waste our time explaining about who Coleridge was or what it all meant. He just read it, and his effect was extraordinary. That corresponded to something in me that I hadn't known was there. It was as if um, there was a sort of complicated lock in my mind, and there was a complicated key that fitted it, and this was that complicated key. And the complicated key went in and turned the complicated lock, and suddenly a door opened up, and there, were, there was mystery and wonder and all sorts of things, the whole universe inside yeah. it. Day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. It made my skin bristle, my hair stand on end, my heart beat faster, my blood pound in my veins, just the sound of those words, which have an effect, uh, it's a musical effect, really, because the magic is inherent in the way the words uh, fit together and sound together and make music together. Once you're under the spell, you're being bewitched. As T.S. Eliot said, poetry communicates before it's understood. And so do certain kinds of music. When you sigh, never in my wordland could there be ways to repeat. Lullaby of Birdland by uh, Sarah Vaughan. There is a quite astonishing display of scat singing, the use of nonsense syllables produced spontaneously, a kind of jamming, but instead of using a musical instrument, using the human voice, for the pleasure of hearing those syllables in particular orders. And scat singing would be a, an example where language is used purely for its pleasurable acoustic properties, even if the meaning is completely cut out. However we try and nail down the language of magic or the magic of language, music, disease, locks, keys, the point is we don't always want to understand, do we? It's the elusiveness of magical language that makes it so tantalising. Is there anything you can do, Darren Brown, say, that would purely be by power of language all the way in Manchester to me here all the way in London? Well, yes, I, it would depend on me having your, your undivided attention, so you obviously I need to speak to you in your headphones. But yeah, I've got, yes. I'm going to close my eyes and I've got my headphones on. I should say that what I'm going to do now will only work with you, Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry, the famous writer and raconteur and, and comedian and author. There'll be obviously be people listening and it will not affect them. This will only affect you because I'm doing this to you into your headphones now. 
Is that clear? Yeah. Fantastic, good. Well, can you put your right hand flat on the table? Do you have a space in front of you that you yeah. can do that? Yeah. Lovely. So I'll ask you to remain quiet, but if you can press your hand into the table and press down really hard, and as you do this... With your eyes closed, and as you listen to me in my voice right there in the centre of your head, as you press... I should also say, using the magic of radio to provide commentary on what Darren is doing to me, that there's an act of parliament regulating the performance of hypnotism routines and strict rules on broadcasting them. So, forgive the interruption, back to me getting inexplicably stuck. You can imagine the hand turning to stone, a cold white stone. You can imagine a, a rope around the hand somehow cementing and bonding and fusing and welding into the table so tight now that in a moment, when I count to three, the more you try in vain to unlock your hand harder, the more the hand will just lock. One, two, three. But the more you try now to uh, unlock the hand, and you can really try, uh, and you are trying. I really, really try. am. The interesting thing about this is that when you open your eyes, it sticks twice as much, because you can see that it's stuck. Right? Oh, so God. Eyes and look at it. This is insane. I, pr I so, am pulling with all my might on my hand. Uh, what, and what's happening? happening? There's this extraordinary... My fingers are pressed right into the green baize... And mm -hmm. I just cannot move it in any way. You... I'm, I'm pulling from my elbow backwards, and I'm trying to also to pull it upwards, and in no direction will it go. And, and the interesting thing is, of course, you're fully aware of there's nothing physically yes, blocking it. It's and insane. I'm, you know, hundreds, hundreds of miles away. <sighs> um, but, the, but that idea that it is locked, and you, are, you appreciate you're doing it yourself, and that's what's interesting. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm providing words, <laughs> but the idea is coming from you. Now, but, the other interesting thing is, I, I can count to three yeah. and click my fingers, and your hand will pop up. It'll be released. <sighs> but only when, I, only when I count to three and click my fingers, Please which is that. a ridiculous <laughs> idea. It it is is absurd. It's a childish idea. <laughs> but nonetheless, one, two, three... <sighs> And you find it's released, yeah? Oh, my goodness. Ladies and oh, gentlemen, sorry. I wish you'd watch that. That was ridiculous. I promise you, there was no set-up. I was not playing along. As I say, my fingernails were white, and it was actually slightly painful because I was pulling so hard with my, whatever it is, radial muscle or something, um, that uh, it was kind of saying, please, please, Darren, you've made your point. Let go now. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That was a fantastic example of a verbal lasso. That was just magnificent. You see, when it comes to magic, even the most sceptical of thinkers, the most rational and empirical scientific minds, can find themselves seduced by the word itself, just sometimes. The word magic literally refers to something that doesn't exist, namely the ability to control reality via your thoughts and words. Uh, so, But even people who have a more sceptical, naturalist bent, more scientific attitude, can still use the word magic in a metaphorical sense to refer to something that's uncannily powerful or graceful or immediate. So the word magic, even in the mouths of people who don't believe that there's any such thing, can be used metaphorically. Mostly stick to abracadabra or maybe make up something that sounds a bit funny, maybe. Wiggle wiggle or something like that. Yeah. Wibble wobble, you could use that magic yeah. word. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Sarah Cudden. It's a testbed production.